Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Emily. Some good songs there. If we stop and listen to the words a little bit, um, you might not even have to listen to a sermon if you listen to those words very well. There's a, there's a couple of good sermons in those songs. We were just, in fact, uh, yeah, that, that last one goes along well with, with what we'll get into today in Galatians. And um, Of course, Galatians is a book that's an awful lot about freedom. We talk about freedom a lot in our country, and particularly in, in these days when we uh, are concerned people might be taking away our freedoms. And freedom's an elusive thing in this world. Uh, it seems like it, it really doesn't take much for freedom to be twisted into something else than what it actually is, and to be given the name of freedom. Um, a little later in chapter 5, we'll see that some people see freedom as, as license. I can, I can do whatever I want. Paul will lay that idea to rest later in the chapter. Um, freedom can be totally missed because it's misunderstood. Um, freedom is a lot more like what a friend, or Jesus, what a friend for sinners. <laughs> Uh, it's a lot like that last verse of blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Um, his presence with us and us working and being with him. And that's, that's what Paul was concerned about for the Galatian church. Churches, actually, it's a region. There were multiple churches there. Is that they were going to miss out on what it really meant to actually submit yourself to Christ and find in that submission what freedom really is about. It wasn't about just doing whatever you feel like, uh, but in fact, joining in with God in, in what he's doing and by his power. And so as he starts off chapter 5, you might notice we, I read chap, chapter 5, verse 1 at the end of chapter 4 last week. It's kind of a transition. It fits both. And some people say verse 1 should be in chapter 4. And, and you know, the people who broke it up into chapters put it in, you know, into you know, the first part of chapter 5. But Paul, obviously it's a central theme, this idea of freedom, when he says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject, or subject again to a yoke of slavery. Paul says, don't, don't let freedom go by the wayside because you have changed your thinking. Because you go to a place where it's not free, but in fact a place of slavery. Let me go ahead and read the first six verses out loud here, if you'd follow along. We've read one, now go on into verse two. It says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Again, I, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by a law, you have fallen from grace, for we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. But faith working through love. He was concerned they were going to go a different direction and go right back into acting as though they were slaves again. And for some of them who were just within the, the Christian community, just apart, but never had actually trusted Christ, he was afraid they were going to lose the opportunity to become freed from their sin. And so as he writes to them, he says, you are, you are freed, you are redeemed out of your sin by Christ so that you could actually be free, so that you could live free. I mean, it's kind of one of those statements that seems a little bit overdone, right? It was for freedom that you have been set free. Like, I got all those obvious statements. But how quickly we will fall back into being slaves of a religious system. We will fall into keeping a law rather than walking by faith with Christ. Remember chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, what, what Paul said. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might, what? Redeem those who were under the law. In other words, buy out from slavery those who had been under the law. Jesus gave His life to buy us out of our slavery to the law and to the sin that plagued us when we were there. As, 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 as of course, Jewish people are speaking there, but we under whatever system as Gentiles we create for ourselves, right? That we might receive what? The adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. It says, you used to be all about rules. It says, but when you were redeemed, when you were bought out of that, you were made a son, walking together with your father into the things that are important to him, a life of true freedom. So he says, don't, don't give that up and go back to the rules. Don't give that up and go back to having you know, a tutor, a taskmaster over you. Stand firm in it. Stand firm, he says. It's interesting, I, in prep, I'm, while I'm studying this, I'm also preparing for our discussion tonight from Ephesians chapter 6. And standing firm is what that passage tells us about too. Uh, just turn over there quickly to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 14. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Ah, strength is necessary for freedom, isn't it? Put on the full armor of God so what? You will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And he goes on. But notice, 
The battle is all about what? Standing firm. Necessary to stand firm in our freedom because Satan is at war against us standing firm in our freedom that we've found in Christ. It will be a battle if you're going to live in the freedom of being a son of God. The attack will come both from your flesh, in other words, your patterns of just kind of doing what comes naturally. Don't do things just because they come naturally. It doesn't make them good or right. Because they'll suck you right back into sinful habits and patterns. But also there will be a pull from the forces of this evil world trying to push us into doing things that are not freedom, but they're just going along with a list of do's and don'ts, going along with a moral system, going along with the values of our subculture of Christianity, or even our culture of our country. It's a battle. It's going to be a fight, not the kind of fight where you're out against people, but you're fighting to be who God has made you to be in Christ. And as long as you don't walk in the Spirit and follow Jesus, you're not a threat to the devil and the world system he's trying to get going. But when you walk in what it is he has made you to be a son of God, doing the things of the kingdom of God, then the attack's going to come. And so he says, stand firm. It will be difficult if you aren't standing firm according to the strength of God. But he also goes on in in verse 1 of of Galatians 5 and says, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And And the tense of that verb indicates that they were already doing that. So it's stop being held in that yoke of slavery. Even though they'd, they'd been made free, even though they'd been made sons, they'd said, could you put that back on me? Stick that yoke back on me, please. I, I, I feel comfortable in there. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that's his description. And you think about what a yoke is. It's a yoke is a means of harnessing the energy of animals so that they can be used for a purpose, like pulling a plow or, or taking you know, a grinding uh, stone around, right? If you're going to, be, to submit to a system of law, you are going to be used for purposes other than God's. The tense of this verb indicates they were already, as I said, pulling under a yoke of slavery introduced by the false teachers. Paul commands them to get out of this pattern of life. It not only goes against what Jesus saved them for, but accomplishes actually something against him. When you get into the yoke of a false system, you are actually letting your energy and work be harnessed to work against God. So doing these good works under the law actually helps evil? Yes. How can that be? Well, Paul, that's what Paul's explaining in the following verses. When he gets to verse 2, he says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit for you. Now, first of all, he says, I, Paul, say. He makes these two verses very personal. I, Paul, say to you. And then again in verse 3, and I testify again. 
See, Paul understood what it was like to be under a system of law. He'd been deep into it. He had, his whole life had been, been piled up in that. And, and, and so he says, I know what that means. I'm, I'm going to not actually go to Philippians 2, 2 through 11, but you read through that. He did everything to be that person who thought he was keeping law like it ought to be kept. Paul knew his own testimony is that he had to write off all of his own good deeds and law-keeping as garbage, as manure, as worthless things in order to believe in Christ and receive a righteousness not his own, but one that comes by faith. So Paul, Paul had used, used his whole life to try to build up, oh, I've kept this law, I kept that law, I didn't do that thing that I'm not supposed to do. I've got it all lined up. And when he came face to face with Jesus, he realized, all I've done is heap up a pile of manure. This won't get me right with God. In order to actually be seen as righteous before God, I have to actually get rid of all of those good deeds. I have to write them off, throw them away, put them where garbage belongs. And I have to entrust myself to Jesus. I have to have his righteousness credited to my account. It's, it's one or the other, and I can't do that. I, I realize, deep down, what I'd done, it wasn't good enough. And so Paul makes this very, very personal. And he brings, brings about a point that we need to hear in our day. Because there's a lie repeated over and over and over in our culture, especially in children's movies and books told over and over to believe in yourself. Paul says believing in yourself cannot be allowed to compete with believing or trusting in Jesus. All of the things that Paul was piling up was believing in himself, believing he could do it. And then what did he end up with? A pile of garbage. But he says you have to entrust yourself to Jesus. You have to believe in Jesus and what he will do in you and through you. So he says, if you receive circumcision, you go along with what these false teachers are telling you to do, and then you go ahead and get circumcised in the hope that it will make you right with God in some way, you're headed down an empty road. But a person might say, well, why don't I just hedge my bets? I'll believe in Jesus. I'll, I'll say the prayer, I'll, you know, get saved. And just in case, I'll do enough good that it might get me into heaven. I'll get, I'll get, I'll get circumcised as an insurance policy. Keep the law, the things that these false teachers are telling me to do, so that if Jesus isn't enough, I'm covered. See, I'll have both, best of both worlds. I'll be doing all the good stuff, and I'll have Jesus too. Paul says, if you do that, Christ will be of no good to you, no benefit, no profit to you. And hopefully you noticed as I was describing that attitude, the lack of trust that that attitude implies. Well, I'm going to trust myself in Jesus, but just in case he isn't quite good enough, I've got this store of stuff, right? 
that maybe will get me through if Jesus isn't what I thought he was. How much trust is that? It's not really trust, is it? What Jesus is saying is let it all go and allow me to save you completely, fully, wholly, without anything missing. Jesus offers salvation as a free gift to those who will trust in him alone. The very nature of our condition, the fact that we are so lost, means we cannot help with our own salvation. For instance, if a person is drowning, and Bruce Barton in his commentary on Galatians puts it this way, if a man is drowning, he instinctively struggles for life. A lifeguard's greatest danger comes if the drowning person panics, flailing his arms and legs, trying to save himself. If the victim relaxes and lets the lifeguard save him, he will be safe. However, if he continues to panic, trying to save himself, he could drown no matter how helpful the lifeguard tries to be. Spiritually, we persist in trying to save ourselves even when we have met the only one who can truly save us. In doing so, we are in danger of missing the lifeguard of our souls. Paul's answer was, if you are trusting Christ to save you, then stop trying to save yourself. Don't continue to struggle against him. You get that? We keep trying to save ourselves. We're actually fighting against Jesus and what he's doing. Paul's saying, you can't have both. In fact, verse 3 goes on to give another good reason. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You see, the law is a package deal. It all comes together. You can't pick and choose what parts you want to keep in order to prove yourself righteous before God. It's not your law. It's God's law, right? He's the one who has the say as to what's in it. So if you're going to say, well, I'm going to do the circumcision thing, and that'll... No, no, no. If you decide to be circumcised in order to make yourself right with God... All the rest of the law comes with it. You have to keep all of the rest. It's your obligation if that's how you're going to be right with God. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 10, he already told us, for as many as are of the works of the, or, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So you don't keep everything in the book of the law? The curse, the condemnation, the judgment is yours. It's the same thing that James teaches in James chapter 2, verse 10. Where he says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And so he tells the Galatians, don't say, oh, I'm going to have this little safeguard. I'm going to have this little extra on top of Jesus. If you're going to pay that way, then you have to go that way. If you're going to trust yourself to Jesus, trust him fully. 
You might say that, that for our sins, there's only one form of payment accepted. You can only present one form of payment to God for your sins. If you want to pay it using the law, well, okay, you use that form of payment. But understand, you've got to keep the whole thing perfectly. What Jesus offers you is to pay 100% completely fully for your sins, and on top of that, crediting his righteousness to your account, that's the other form of payment. It can't be accepted along with any other forms. It has to be that and that alone. That's what Paul's trying to say. Don't think you're going to add circumcision in here to Jesus. Don't think you're going to add baptism along with Jesus. Don't think that you're going to try to add tithing or church attendance or being nice to your neighbor or whatever on top of Jesus in order to get right with God. That's the issue. In order to get right with God. You have to entrust yourself fully to Jesus to make you right with God. If you choose law of any kind, whether it's the one God gave through Moses or if it's the one you made up in your head, you won't be able to keep it, and the payment won't be accepted. In fact, chapter, or verse 4, he says, you if, you, if you go with circumcision, you have been severed from Christ. And down through verse 12 of this chapter, uh, Paul uses words that play off the, the idea of, the physical idea of circumcision, and the cutting off of a piece of skin that happens when a man is circumcised. And basically, choosing circumcision and law-keeping means that you haven't become united with Christ, but you've been cut off from him. If, if the listener is an unbeliever, uh, this means that they are putting distance between themselves and the one who is able to save them through faith. If the listener is truly a believer... Uh, the application here is that they are leaving behind, they're cut off from the power that Christ is directing through them for practical change in righteousness. Oh, their sins are forgiven, and now they're going to walk away from the power that brought them to that place? They're going to cut themselves off from Christ in that way? Why would you do that? That power saved you. Why try to be holy in your own pitiful strength? How holy are you going to get if it's based on you and what you're capable of doing? Paul takes the, the words there even further in verse 4. As he goes on, he says, You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And that word fallen has the idea of to hold on to. And the picture here is, is if you hold on to grace, great. You try to hold on to law as well, and you will let go of both. You will lose grip on both of them. Now understand, in the churches of Galatia, like our churches today, there are believers and there are unbelievers. So what does it mean when Paul says you have fallen from grace? And we don't need to rip that out of context and go start saying, oh, you've lost your salvation. No, he's not saying you've lost your salvation. He says you've fallen away from the one by whose power you are saved. If you are an unbeliever, you know, that's like the severed skin that falls from a man in the act of circumcision. 
Trusting in circumcision pictures separation from the body that gives life. For the unbeliever, that means tragic loss. He or she has heard the truth, had benefited from the fellowship of the body, but choosing to try to do good works to gain salvation, they, they separate themselves from the power that gives life. You've fallen away. You're, you're, you're going a whole different direction than what's, the way salvation comes. It's a gift. Don't fall away from that, unbeliever. For the believer, they've come to know Christ. They've entrusted themselves to him for salvation. And now they're going to use the law in order to become holy. They're going to use the law in order to have a practical righteousness in their day-to-day -day living. For most of the hearers, I think this is where they were at. They, they had, were truly believers. They'd entrusted themselves to Christ. The grace that they would fall from is the gift of God's power at work in them to make their daily lives conform to what Jesus is. In other words, the process we call sanctification, which doesn't happen by our own strength or ability. That was why he rebuked them so, so strongly in chapter 3, verse 3. He said to them, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You, know, you, were, you were saved by the work of the Spirit in your heart. Now is it your own personal ability and strength that's going to make you practically righteous in day-to-day -day living? Didn't you see what the power of the Spirit did in you? Haven't you seen what the power of God did in you to, to bring you to Christ and unite you with Him? Why would you not use that exact same strength and power that He offers to be changed in your daily life? Are you going to become more and more holy by your own abilities? Rather than have the infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise Holy Spirit bring that about in you as you walk with Him. What are you thinking, Paul says? Then he goes on now and gives the positive. He says, don't submit yourself to this new set of laws and give up the power that is going to help make you practically holy. But instead, he says, this is what's true of us, verses 5 and 6. He says, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. So again, he keeps bringing us back, like we saw earlier in chapter 3. It's through the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit residing in believers who brings about practical holiness in each life. Uh, this process is what he'll speak of later in the chapter as walking by the Spirit or ordering your life according to the Spirit. The emphasis here is that, that we're expecting only what happens because God, the Holy Spirit, is at work. Therefore, we have hope, the hope of righteousness. It happens how? Well, just like how you got saved, by or out of faith as a source. Faith still 
is still the means of our hope coming about. God doesn't force practical holiness on us. He will discipline you, though, if you are not cooperating with his efforts because you are now a child, right? Look at what happens to children that don't go along with mom and dad's plan for them. But it's only Jesus who saves us, and it's only the Spirit of God who brings righteousness into the reality of our lives. And so he says, through the Spirit, by faith, we are, this is great, eagerly expecting the hope of righteousness. That's how he describes Christians, people who are eagerly expecting the hope of righteousness. There's a leaning forward, looking for practical righteousness to come into our lives. It's a joyful reality of the Christian life when it is lived through the Spirit and by faith that God will make us more and more righteous in our actual thoughts, words, and patterns of life. He says, you should be, as a believer, that's what you should be looking for, eagerly expecting in your own life is an increase day by day in practical holiness. Because he changes us more and more as we trust in trust him and rely on him through a variety of circumstances that he brings into our lives. And this culminates in our complete righteousness when we, come, go, when we go to be with him. That's when the process is complete. So there's a sense in which we're eagerly expecting to see change in our hearts and lives. We're also eagerly expecting that one day it's going to be complete. No more will I keep on committing sins, and have to confess those and bring it back around. Grow some in the process, but no more expecting that I'm going to sin anymore because there's going to be a time when I see him face to face. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, what? We will be like him. Because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So one day we're going to see him face to face and process will be finished, right? We will be like him. But John is on the same, lo- same page as, as Paul. But anybody who has that hope is cooperating with the Holy Spirit in the process of becoming closer to that each day, because that is God's desire for us. That is his will for us, our sanctification, our being made holy. That's the joyful reality that we're looking for as Christians. We're not looking to submit ourselves to another list of do's and don'ts. No, we're children of God. We're co-heirs. We're walking toward the same kingdom. And so we have every freedom to do what will take us toward that kingdom, you know, the way we live. But ceremony, the outside physical things of this life aren't the key. 
And that's what the, that was the lie they were being told. It's, well, are you circumcised or not? Well, if you're not circumcised, well, you never, came, you never became one of the Jews and entered in with the Messiah on the benefits that he has. They haven't been keeping the law and all these things on the outside. Now, Paul says here in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. A person's physical state, circumcised or not circumcised, is of no consequence when it comes to being right with God or becoming holy in your personal life. Paul isn't saying that a believer who got circumcised is now unable to be saved. Not at all. In fact, he was circumcised as a baby, right? Paul has no problems, in fact, with a person being circumcised. If a believer gets, is circumcised for the right reason, it's no, remember what he did with Timothy while he was in Galatia? He had Timothy be circumcised so that there wouldn't be a distraction when they were working with unbelieving Jews. Didn't do it so Timothy would be saved. Didn't do it so Timothy would be, be, have a better standing with God. It was just so that ministry would be unhindered by the issue. And so it's not about the outside, as he said. Circumcision or uncircumcision, doesn't matter. Unless you're doing it in order to make yourself right with God. Keeping the law. Well, Paul celebrated some of the different feasts and things, right? He did, some, did things that were in the law. Not in order to make himself right with God, but as a way of worshiping God, as a way of fellowshipping with, his, with other Jews. So understand, it's not a matter of, well, oh, you have that physical thing happen to you? Oh, you can't be... No. Not, not any more than if you haven't had that physical thing happen to you. In fact, it's the same thing with another physical area, food. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. Paul makes a similar statement about what you eat and what you don't eat. There was a lot of controversy, controversy over that. He said, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. So if you're getting wrapped up in the food you eat or the food you don't eat related to whether you're right with God or not, doesn't matter. It's just food. In fact, the whole idea of circumcision has always been a picture of, the, of sin in the heart of man. It was the idea of cutting off sin from a person's heart. Go with me to Jeremiah. There's a number of places in the Old Testament that talk about this. It's not a New Testament idea. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. Actually, make that 23 through 26. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. 
Egypt, now, he is, now he explains what he means by that. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab, all these, those inhabiting the, the, the desert who clip the hair on their temples, for all the nations are uncircumcised. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. He said, oh yeah, yeah your, your baby boys, when they're eight, eight days old, you've been very careful to, to, to do the circumcision on them. But that was just a picture of the cutting away of sin from your heart. That's why I had you be circumcised. As a picture that you needed to cut sin away. Now let me take care of it for you. So whether your body is physically circumcised or not circumcised doesn't matter. Okay, then what does matter, Paul? What does matter? He says, but faith working through love. But faith working by means of love, he says in verse 6. This is where the power of the Christian life lies. It's not a matter of exerting your own will and power to do great things for God and therefore earning his favor. The key is trusting Jesus fully, and then as he directs, we act with love as our motivation with his power undergirding our actions. Faith working or energized by means of love. Because that's what goes on. Not a duty to keep a list. Not a duty to do this, do this, do this. Do. No, no, it's, it's trusting him fully and letting him then energize your actions, motivated by his love. And as I said before, this is where Paul's going to go later in the chapter and call it walking by the Spirit. That's what matters, he says. God has an amazing life of trusting him and being made more like Jesus as we walk in what that trust brings. It begins with the gift of salvation out of our slavery to sin, being redeemed, bought out of our slavery to sin. But it continues daily into eternity as we trust him for what this life is really about and become transformed in practice and experience the joy of, of knowing him and his power and in his wisdom. We go along with him, looking to him. Well, Lord, what do you want in my life now? Lord, this thing's coming to me. What is it you want me to do? Lord, this is a circumstance I don't understand. How does that fit into you building your church, your kingdom? It's a freedom because we have. Him, not just walking by us, but actually dwelling within us. He says, don't go back to being slaves. Enter the joy of being children, fully engaged with your Father, walking by the Spirit day by day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Not that we were worthy, but because you have great love for us, that you saved us, that you invited us to partake of the sacrifice that your Son made on our behalf. Because you invited us to believe 
that our sins could be forgiven. You invited us to believe that even though we were born sinners and we chose to be sinners, that not only could our sins be forgiven, but that we could be changed. We could really be different in the way we think and act and do. Father, I pray you would give us a heart that is expecting that change to happen in our lives. That is expecting to, to see us become more holy, not because we're something, but because you've said you're going to do it. That uh, you will complete that work that you've begun in us until the day of Christ Jesus. Help us to, to experience the joy of seeing that happening. Because you're doing it. And we get to engage our wills with yours and, and live in a freedom that's different than anything we ever imagined. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us to understand it more and better each day. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.